Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 1. 1 Timothy, Chapter 1, and we'll read the first 11 verses, and then we'll read a couple... Uh, larger catechism questions from our book. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And then page 1901 in our little book, Larger Catechism Questions 93 and 94. We've looked at all of 93 except the last line, which we're going to consider briefly this evening before we come to question 94. So, question 93. What is the moral law? The moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto, in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he owes to God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. Is there any use of the moral law to man since the fall? Although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law, yet there is great use thereof, as well common to all men as peculiar either to the unregenerate or the regenerate. In other words, that's the introduction for the next three questions. The next one's going to say, how is the moral law useful to everybody? The next one, what's the particular use of the moral law in those that are unregenerate and not converted? And then thirdly, what's the special use of the moral law in the lives of Christians? And so this evening, we're going to do two things. We're going to wrap up our study of the first answer and begin the second. So we'll begin with studying the promises and the threatenings 
of the law of God, and then we'll see, to use the words of our catechism, what the great use of the law of God is in the lives of everybody. Notice how question 93 concludes. It says that God's law promises life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of God's law. Promises life upon the fulfilling and threatens death upon the breach of God's law. The thing that it points out to us that our age has forgotten largely is that eternal life is so inseparably connected with obedience that one cannot expect to have the one without the other. That eternal life and obedience to God's law are so inseparable that you can't have one without the other. You can't have eternal life Without obedience to God's law, you can't have obedience to God's law without eternal life. They're both inseparably connected. And yet, after having said that, eternal life is not based on our obedience. When God gives us eternal life, He gives us the power to obey His law. When God gives us the power to obey His law, He gives us eternal life. And the Bible says in Romans 3.20 that by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in God's sight. So to say that you can't expect life and, obe- uh, and obedience without each other is not to say that eternal life is based upon how well we keep God's law. There is a very good reason why God connects blessings and curses with the law of God. If you really want to understand the effects of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world, <clears throat> read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Because he died on the cross to secure those blessings and curses, and he arose from the dead on the third day to administer them in the lives of his friends and his enemies. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. And the reason these blessings and curses are connected with the law of God is because we as Christians are still sinners. And we still need many goads to keep us on the straight and narrow. You know what a goad is? Remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus when he saved him? He said, why are you kicking against the goads, Paul? And that's something sharp. You stick into the side of the cow or the horse or whatever, the mule to get him to go in the direction you want him to go. And we as Christians still need goads because we're sinners to keep us on the straight and narrow. Sometimes we need a promise and we're in the mood to be influenced by promise more than by threatening. And there are other times that we're particularly stubborn and we need more of a threatening than we do a promise. But these threatenings to disobedience connected with God's law and these promises of gracious rewards to obedience in no way imply salvation by works. Because these threats and these promises are evangelical in purpose. Now what do I mean? They are the means that God has appointed to prevent the believers from falling into total apostasy. Sometime read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has been called the epistle of warning. It's full of all kinds of warnings. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Uh, don't harden your hearts and, and fall away as they did uh, with unbelief in Old Testament times and did not reach the rest that others obtained. Uh, those who fall away having been once enlightened shall uh, not be renewed into repentance. And on and on, all kinds of threats. 
Now, what's the implication of those threats? Does that mean that when the Lord threatens you, you better stay on the straight and narrow because if you fall from it, uh, you'll see worse condemnation than if you were never on it at all? Is the implication that you can fall from grace? Is it the implication that you can be saved and you can be lost? Of course not. The Bible teaches us that we're eternally secure in Christ. So what's the purposes then of these threatenings to believers? It is to keep us straight. That by these threatenings, God keeps the saved saved. As well as by these promises, God keeps the saved. They're His incentives. They're His appointed means by which He prevents us from falling into total apostasy. And also bear in mind that the rewards that God promises to our obedience and our faithfulness to His law are all of grace. That is, they're far more than you and I deserve. Whenever God blesses us, for obeying Him, it's not because we deserve that blessing. It is in spite of the imperfections of our obedience that God graciously blesses us. Because these blessings are not based on merit, but based on the grace of God. Listen to some of these promises for rewards that are given to our faithfulness by grace. First Timothy 5.8 For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. He says it's very profitable to be godly. God rewards godliness, not in a way that it deserves, but more graciously. First Timothy 6.6 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. I want you to turn with me in the back of your Trinity hymnals to a great paragraph on page 682. 682, you have the Westminster Confession of Faith in the back of the Trinity hymnal. And paragraph 6 of chapter 19 on the law of God is particularly wise and useful and edifying. And let me read uh, paragraph 6. And particularly as we get down into the substance of the paragraph, you'll see why I'm reading it. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet is it of great use to them. By the way, notice our larger catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith use this phrase, great use. The law is of great use to people, as well as to others, in order that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly discovering or revealing also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. It is likewise use of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show, now he's explaining why the threatenings and the promises are connected with the law of God. The threatenings of the law serve to show what even the Christian sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they, that is Christians, may expect for their sins, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of the law, in like manner, show them God's approbation, God's approval of obedience, and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. 
although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, as something they deserve, so as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. And so these threatenings are goads, and these promises are rewards, are also stimulants, and these rewards of all are all of grace. But after having said that God promises certain blessings to those who obey his law, it must be understood that the true believer, while he enjoys God's blessings at heart, obeys the law of God because he loves to obey the law of God because he loves God and wants to please him. At the same time, the believer does not reject God's gifts. There's nothing unchristian about hoping for a promised reward from God simply because it is from God as a token or as a kiss of his love for us. A Christian obeys God because he loves to. But that doesn't mean he says, oh, don't give any gifts, Lord, I just want to obey you. No, he loves the gifts because, and the promises, the rewards, because of who they're from. On my birthday, <coughs> Mark Rushdooney, Rusus J. Rushdooney's son, gave me a book that belonged to Rusus J. Rushdooney. That was in his library. It's an old book, John, Jonathan Edwards. It's not valuable. It's still being reprinted today in paperback. You can get it for 6 or $7. So why do I cherish this book? It belonged to Rush Dooney. It was in his library. It was given to me by his son. So why do we cherish the rewards and the blessings on obedience that Christ gives us? We love to do it just because we love him. But we love his gifts and we love his rewards because they're from him whom we love. Listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, I look forward to seeing Jesus, and one of the reasons is to receive a crown of righteousness that he's laid up for me. You see, it's not unchristian to love the gifts that Jesus gives. A Christian looks forward to receiving crowns from Jesus as gracious rewards for his obedience to him so that as soon as he gets them, he can take them off his own head and cast them at the feet of Jesus in adoration and praise. Now, this second question, 94, tells us something about a great use of God's law before and after man's fall into sin. Now, before we get next week into the specifics of that great use, let's talk about the great use of the law of God by expounding the Scripture passage that the Westminster Fathers uses to, uh, used to support their answer to question 94. So go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 that we read a while ago. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. And keep that right there for a minute because I want us to consider some things before we get to it. First of all, let's consider the use of God's law before the fall. 
That is, why did God give Adam and Eve the law of God when they were sinlessly perfect? When they were innocent before they'd committed any sin? And the answer, it was the means by which Adam would have obtained for himself and the whole human race unlosable eternal life and indefectible holiness. God put Adam as a public person, as a representative, as the covenant head of the human race on a limited period of probation. And he told Adam, in effect, he said, Adam, if during this probation period you obey me perfectly without any sins, I will give to you and your posterity something far more than your obedience deserves. I will give you unlosable eternal life and all of your descendants. And I will make you holy, in fact so holy that it will be impossible for you to become unholy. Indefectible holiness. But, if you disobey the law, you plunge yourself and all of your prosperity into sin and death. And so we know the rest of the story. So the point is that originally... God gave the law to Adam as a covenant of works in which if he obeyed God perfectly, he would obtain for all of us a life that would never end and there would never be any sin on this planet. Generally, at the same time, the law of God was given to to enhance and beautify and protect the life of human beings. Listen to what Romans 7, 10 and 11 say. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. He says originally this law of God had as its purpose to result in life. For Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But something came into the picture. And that is man's sin. And because of man's sin since the fall, that same law that was to result in life in the unregenerate and the unbelieving results in and promotes death by aggravating sin. The wages of sin is death. You notice it said that that, uh, my sin took opportunity, took advantage of the situation. And the law of God that was once meant to enhance my life now condemns me because when I hear the law, I don't hear it with the same ears that Adam heard it before the fall. He heard it obediently, respectfully. Now when I hear God commanding me to do something, I resent it because I want to be the God of my own life. And so when God says, don't do this, I say, I will. And when God says, do this, I say, I won't. And so that which originally was given to result in life because of my sin has resulted in death. So the the, the original purpose of the law of God before the fall was to enhance and protect and guard life. Now what's the non-use of God's law since the fall? The law of God has a lot of functions and has a lot of uses. But there's one thing that the law of God was never given for. There's one use it's never had. There's one function that was never uh, its purpose. What is it? Romans 8.3 says, 
For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His Son and dying as a, having Him die as a sacrifice for us. And what could the law not do? It could never save from sin. It could command and it could condemn disobedience. But the law of God could never forgive sin. And because of man's weakness and imperfections, the law of God could never make man acceptable with God. And now because of his sin, the law of God in the life of the unbeliever does not promote life. It promotes death. Galatians 2.16, a great verse to use with people when you're trying to lead them to Christ, says this. And I want you to look it up uh, with me because we're going to make the point and we're going to show how it is abused in Reformed circles and how it has confused people that have left Chalcedon. And you must know the answer to some of these things of the uh, heresies of the federal vision. But Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now what is it the law cannot do? What's the non-use of the law of God? The law of God and obedience to it cannot justify you before God. That's why justification is by faith in Christ alone. Because the law of God condemns, but it cannot remove the condemnation our disobedience brings to it to us. And it cannot remove that <clears throat> tyrannical power of sin over the sinner. The law of God cannot give life. Romans 7 tells us something very practical. It tells us that the law of God cannot make a bad man good, and it cannot make a good man better that it has no justifying power and it has no sanctifying power. But in an unparalleled display of grace and mercy, God did in the gospel of His Son what the law could not do. Justified us by faith. Sanctifies us. Glorifies us. And brings us to complete perfection at last. What the law of God could, could command but could not give, the gospel gives. And that is a life of righteousness before God. You remember what Romans 8, 1 through 4 says. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law or power of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law or power of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now the Federal Vision people set Galatians 2.16 on its head and turned the whole thing upside down and tries to discredit the historical and biblical in long-standing interpretation of this verse. That we're justified, our sins are forgiven, and we're accepted with God through faith alone and not by obeying the Ten Commandments. Although the Ten Commandments, after you have faith, is, a, is, is proof of faith. But here's how they 
say that that's false doctrine. They say the word works of the law in, in Galatians 2. That we're saved by faith and not by the works of the law. That the works of the law, they tell us, they simply make the assertion, that works of the law are is a specific phrase that has reference to Jewish identity markers. That is, to circumcision, Saturday Sabbath, and dietary laws, and things like that, that separated and identified the Jews as Jews. So they say we are justified by faith and not by these Jewish identity markers. So that you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. And that's what the works of the law means. It's just a limited technical phrase. That is easy to refute. If you look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10... You read these words. For, and here's the phrase. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So there you have a definition of what, of what works of the law means. Works of the law is obedience to everything written in the book of the law. And cursed is a person who does not abide by all these things in the law of God. That's a quote, by the way, from Deuteronomy 27, 26. It's not talking about circumcision, dietary laws, but talking about great moral issues. So you see, works of the law, don't let anybody can fool you. I'll try to simplify it. Well, if when you see the works of the law, and it says we're justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, the phrase the works of the law means obedience to the Ten Commandments. As important as the Ten Commandments are in living the Christian life, your sins aren't forgiven and you aren't accepted with God by keeping the Ten Commandments and hoping some way or another to uh, deserve God's acceptance. No, you're justified by faith in Christ alone apart from the works of the law. Now let me tell you another sneaky way they try to take the uh, power out of Galatians 2.16. Notice what it says. It says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... I'm going to show you how they translate it differently in order to sneak in their legalism. Galatians 2.16. Now notice, if you see if you can catch how they, because it's tricky, how they sneak in a false translation. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law except through faith in Christ Jesus. See what they did? They changed the but to ex, except says we're not justified by the works of law, but through faith in Jesus. They say how it should be translated is that we're not uh, that we're uh, not saved by the works of the law except through faith in Jesus. So that if you have faith in Jesus, works of the law do justify. You see, that's their point. That we're not justified by works except if you have faith in Jesus then a life of obedience to the Ten Commandments does have a justifying effect to it. And you'll find that out at the end of time. Well, you see, the problem is that throughout, that throughout Galatians, faith and works, with reference to justification, are placed in sharp contrast with each other, not as qualifying each other. 
For instance, look at Galatians 3, 11 and 12. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. So you see, when it comes to that little word, every word is important in the Scriptures. And what Paul's doing is saying, here's an absolute contrast. We are not justified by works, but in direct contrast, we're justified by faith in Christ alone. If you ever get a translation of the Bible and that word but is, uh, there's not a but there, but an except, take your Bible back and get another one. Now, there's another way they try to worm their heresy in. They say, well, we believe you're justified by faith and not by the works of the law because the word faith means, to use their words, particularly the words of Norman Shepherd, faith means faithful obedience to Christ. So that we're justified by faithful obedience to the law of God for Christ's sake and not by these Jewish identity markers. Now, if faith means faithful obedience to Christ, then that means that you're not really and completely justified until judgment day. Hopefully you don't fall away before then so that you'll have a life of good works and obedience to back up your faith. But you see, the problems with this is faith does not mean faithful obedience. Faith looks away from itself to Jesus Christ. Unlike obedience, obedience is concerned with bringing ourselves into conformity to the law of God with the power of the Spirit. That's not what faith is concerned with. Faith looks completely away from me and my accomplishments and my contributions, good or bad. Looks entirely away from me and rests upon another. So that faith is simply the open, outstretched, empty hand that receives Christ. Furthermore, this view that we're justified by a life of faithful obedience to God that's not complete in Judgment Day contradicts some of the tenses of the Scriptures. In Romans 5.1 it says, Therefore, past tense, having been justified by faith. It's not an ongoing process. But it's something that's already settled. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, they try to sneak in their views by changing the meaning of the word justify. So that to justify does not mean what the church has thought it's meant since the Protestant Reformation. And that is a forensic one-time declaration of righteousness by God the judge. That when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that moment the judge of the whole human race declares you irreversibly acquitted, forgiven, accepted. But what do they think the word just and you see this in something like Proverbs seventeen fifteen. Proverbs 17, 15 is a great little verse. It says that God, uh, that, that judges that condemn the righteous and justify the wicked are an abomination to God. Those who declare the righteous guilty and the guilty righteous are abominations to God. So what do they think the word justify means? Accepted in the covenant community. 
Justify means accepted in the covenant community. I challenge you to look up in any Greek dictionary and see if the word for justify ever means accepted in a covenant community. That is a creation on their part. So, what do we learn here? In Galatians 2.16, we learn that the law of God does not save. That it's non-use. It's a guide for saved living. But we're saved by faith in Christ alone. Now, what's the, what is the great use of the law of God since the fall in the lives of human beings? Well, now we come to 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. And let's go all the way back to verse uh, 3, uh, verse 2, and see the context. Because this is a powerful passage of Scripture. In verses 2 through 4, Paul begins this epistle by instructing Timothy the following. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, as I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And then in verse 5, in contrast to these false teachers he's warning about, Paul says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Then in verses 6 and 7, he returns to the danger of these teachers of false doctrine. And he says, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And then in verses 8 through 11, after warning regarding these would-be teachers of the law of God, Paul wants to make himself perfectly clear that his comments in no way are to be understood as downplaying the teaching and study and applying and obeying of the law of God in the everyday life of the Christian. And so he says in verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now I want you to notice three points in verses 8 through 11. Three points. First of all, it's possible to apply the law of God unlawfully. He says it's of use, great use, if you, if, you, if you apply it lawfully. So that means it is possible to apply and obey the law of God in an unlawful manner. Now how can you do it? By uh, attributing to it purposes that God never gave it. For instance, if you seek to be justified by all of your endeavors at being obedient to the law of God, you are using it in an unlawful manner. Uh, if you see the law of God as an evil from which we need to be set free, rather than the need to be set free from the curse of the law, then you are using it unlawfully. 
So that's the first thing to take note of. A person can believe the law of God but ruin everything by using it in an unlawful manner according to purposes that God hasn't given it. And number the second point. When the law of God is applied lawfully, it is of great use to everybody. Saved or lost, reprobate or elect, wicked or righteous. That when the law of God is applied lawfully, it is of great use to everybody in the whole world. The goodness and the beauty and the life-promoting power of God's law are experienced only when the law of God is used in a proper and lawful manner. That is, for the purpose for which it was given. And what is that purpose in, in this context? What is it that God says He intends for the law of God to be used for? To restrain and convict the evil that He describes in all of these perverts and thieves and killers of mothers and fathers and things like that. So here Paul is elaborating one function of God's law. We're going to see on a subsequent Sundays that there's many functions of God's law. Paul's only concerned with one of them now. And he says if we're going to use the law of God lawfully... We must use it in the way that God intended, and that is to keep a restraint on sin and to convict people when they do sin. And say so he's saying these, these would-be law teachers, the only thing they produce is idle speculation. They sit around and philosophize. He said, but the primary concern and function of the law of God is to convict of sin and to restrain sin. Paul's making this point for contrast and effect. He says a perfectly righteous person doesn't need this function of God's law. I mean, if you're perfectly righteous and you don't have any sins, you don't need to be restrained and you don't need to be convicted. Paul later makes the point there is no such person. But it's simply arguing from principle. There's a point to be made. There's a contrast to be drawn. And that is, the law of God was made for sinners and not for righteous people. At the same time, however, Romans 3.10 says, There's none righteous, no, not one, not even one. Even the best of Christians have indwelling sins with which they must struggle day in and day out, according to Romans 7. Therefore, Christians must work in the power of the Holy Spirit to continually purify themselves and to bring their thoughts and behavior more and more into conformity to the righteous standard of God's law. Romans 7 tells us that although the believer joyfully concurs with the law of God in the inner man, he's not yet completely righteous. He's far from it. And so he finds himself doing things he doesn't really want to do and the things he really wants to do, he doesn't always do. And it's for this reason that the New Testament continually exhorts believers to be godly and holy and righteous and loving in all of our living. Why do we need these exhortations? Why do we as Christians need the law of God? Because we're not perfectly righteous. We're still sinners who need to have our sin restrained and be convicted of that sin. Listen to Greg Bonson. This means that the law of God is still needed by the Christian as a pattern of holiness by which he shall conduct himself in the power of the Holy Spirit. The law is good, says Paul, and good men do not need it. 
but such we are not. The law was laid down for the lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinful, unholy, and profane. Those persons need social restraint, spiritual conviction of sin, and guidance in the paths of righteousness after regeneration and conversion. We who are not yet perfect still have the need for God's law. So that's the second point Paul makes. The law of God, when used lawfully, is beneficial for everybody. And then the third point is that the law of God and the gospel of Christ are in full agreement with each other. The law of God and the gospel of Christ are in full agreement with each other. Now, how does Paul make this point here? By showing us that disobedience to the law of God as well as the unlawful use of the law of God, are both, in verse 11, look at verse 11, are both contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Disobedience to God's law is contrary to the gospel. Using the law of God in an unlawful manner is contrary to the gospel, but not the lawful use of the law of God. The goal of Paul's command to conform to sound teaching and to avoid strange doctrines is identical to the law of God of the Old Testament. You can put those verses right back in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's the purpose of the Mosaic law? To conform to sound teaching and to avoid strange doctrines. The gospel doctrines bring a believer to the goal of the law of God and to its demands. Right doctrine necessitates right living. Gospel doctrine aims at the same thing the law of God aims at. Look at 1 Timothy 1.5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal of law and gospel. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 and 4. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conformed to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Look in 2 Timothy 2, 19 and verse 22. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now flee from youthful lusts, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. These are the goals of the gospel, and they are identical to the goals of the law of God. And so, therefore, the lawful use of God's law in the Old Testament is perfectly harmonious with the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel does not contradict God's law. It confirms it. And those who reject the gospel reject the law and vice versa. So then, to summarize, what's Paul teaching us here? It's possible to apply God's law unlawfully. That is, for the wrong purpose. But when God's law is applied lawfully, it is of great use to everybody. And thirdly, the law of God and the gospel of Christ are in full harmony and agreement with each other. Let me give you three or four therefores, and we're through. Therefore, avoid legalism. 
What is legalism? A legalist reads the law without the gospel. A legalist reads the law and says, I can climb up this ladder of the law of God in my own strength and merit God's favor. Avoid legalism. But on the other hand, avoid antinomianism. Anti means against. Nomianism comes from a Greek word, namos, for law. Somebody who is against the law. Avoid antinomianism. An antinomian reads the gospel without the law. As if the gospel is lawless. Understand that the motive of law keeping is the gospel. Why would anybody want to obey the law of God? Because he believes the gospel. And when you believe in the gospel, that faith will inevitably lead you to keeping God's law. So parents, therefore, teach your children to love the gospel and the law. Teach them about Jesus. Teach them songs about Jesus. Teach them songs about God's law. Ask them when you go home, what's the longest chapter in the Bible? And I'm sure you all know, if you don't, I'm sure your children do, that the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. What is Psalm 119 about? It's got hundreds of verses, so to speak. All kinds of verses. What is Psalm 119, the longest song in the Bible, about? Love? The gospel? Jesus? No. God's laws? The longest song in the Bible is about the law of God. Teach your children to sing in our hymn book. Oh, how love I thy law. So that they love the gospel and the law. Though, per, though the gospel and the law are in perfect agreement, because they have the same goals, nevertheless they are distinct. The law of God is not the gospel, and the gospel is not the law. The law commands and condemns. The law gives, and then provides the faith to receive. What law commands, the gospel gives. And both are invaluable gifts from God. And one without the other is absolutely inconceivable. God's law never was meant to be without God's gospel. And God's gospel is not meant to be without God's law. For the law drives us to the gospel. And the gospel leads us to the law of God. There is therefore now no condemnation whatever for those who are in Christ Jesus. What the power, because the power of the spirit of life has set you free from the power of sin and death. Because what the law could not do, weak as it was, because the flesh God did. By sending his own son into the likeness of human flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not by the flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Great God in heaven, we are eternally grateful to you for the law and the gospel. We thank you for the way it promotes life in those who believe in you and guards life and enhances life. We thank you for the gospel that gives life. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us never to use the law of God for any purpose for which it was not given. We thank you that that law and gospel, the whole Bible, is in complete harmony. 
Help us to love every word of both. For Jesus' sake, amen. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.